All right. Good evening. Um, you can turn in your copies of the scriptures to Luke 18. And I uh, apologize, but I did get some handouts out kind of late. So if you missed a handout and you want to get one, they're back, they're back there on that uh, pedestal. All right, so uh, Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. We're reading a, or studying a parable tonight. Parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And so let's, uh, let's begin in verse 9 and read through, uh, read through 14. He, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So I've entitled the sermon uh, for the passage we'll be studying tonight, uh, The Danger of Pride, the Parable of the, ta- of the Pharisee and the Tax Collector. In this parable, the Lord Jesus gives a loving and strong warning. You see, the intended audience which Jesus is trying to persuade can be found squarely and plainly in verse 9. He, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with content. That is the intended audience. This kind of person is uh, someone that we typically call a proud person. Now you might think that Jesus' intended audience are Pharisees, and yet pride is a temptation for all people. In its immediate application, this applied to Jesus' own followers as much as to the Pharisees of his day. And today, pride is a dangerous temptation for you and for me. And as we study the theme of this passage together tonight, I encourage you to examine your heart and listen carefully to Jesus' warning. Let's let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for sending your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for um, all that he taught us. And most of all, for his sacrifice, which made it possible for us to be freed from our sin, to have our penalty of our sin paid for. And we thank you, Lord, that um, we will be with you one day, and we won't have to deal with pride, and we won't have to uh, deal with besetting sins. Lord, we look forward to that day that we can see you for who you are in your glory. We won't have a care in the world. Please help us as we study this uh, message tonight, this passage. Lord, I pray that you would work through your spirit in each of us and that we would grow more into the conformity of Christ himself, who is a great example of humility. 
and of trust and dependence on you, Father. So we just lay this uh, time before you and ask for your blessing on it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so the first section uh, of the, the first section tonight is the, um, the proud condemn others, but the humble plead for God's mercy. So Jesus ministered in the first century A.D. Uh, the Roman Empire was under the reign of Emperor Tiberius Caesar. He was the uh, second emperor, and uh, he was the, son, uh, the stepson of Caesar Augustus, the first emperor. And the Roman Empire was divided into uh, different provinces. The Roman province of Judea is where Jesus lived and taught this parable. And uh, it was under the govern, govern, uh, governorship of Pontius Pilate. And there were all sorts of different identity groups in Judea during that time. And the, the Romans really struggled uh, to stay on top of the political and religious landscape. Uh, there were merchants and fishermen, there were farmers, shepherds, there were priests, uh, so soldiers, there were Herodians who were those who uh, supported the government, supported uh, Hellenism, the secular influence of the Greeks and um, the Greeks and Romans. There were Samaritans, as you know, a little bit to the north of Jerusalem. Uh, there was also Romans that lived in, in Judea. And of all the identity groups uh, for, uh, from which to choose from, Christ chose two specific identity groups for this parable. Pharisees and tax collectors. And uh, some of your translations probably say publicans, uh, which is the exact same thing as tax collectors. Um, I think publican comes from a Latin word. Um, and, but it's, it basically means tax collectors. And I'm going to refer throughout as, as tax collectors. Um, so Christ... Uh, chose these two specific groups for his parable. And uh, the audience back then knew exactly what a typical tax collector was. They knew exactly what a typical Pharisee was. Uh, they knew individuals who were Pharisees and who were tax collectors. They may have interacted with them on a regular basis and uh, spread the latest news about this or that person. Uh, the Lexham Bible Dictionary gives this description of tax collectors. Tax collectors earned a profit by demanding a higher tax from the people than they had prepaid to the Roman government. This system led to widespread greed and corruption. The tax collecting profession was saturated with unscrupulous people who overtaxed others to maximize their personal gains. Since the Jews considered themselves victims of Roman oppression, Jewish tax collectors who overtaxed their fellow countrymen were especially despised. Jews viewed such favor for Rome as betrayal and equal to treason with, against God. End quote. So not only did the Pharisees look down on tax collectors, pretty much all the other Jews did as well. Uh, the Luxembourg Bible Dictionary gives this overview of Pharisees. The Pharisees developed a tradition of strict interpretation of the Mosaic Law, developing an extensive set of oral extensions of the law designed to maintain religious identity and purity. The, or the origin of the term Pharisee comes from the Aramaic word paresh, which means to separate, to divide, or distinguish. The Pharisees kept themselves apart both socially and theologically 
from aristocratic sympathizers with Hellenism, uh, which again was the um, secular influence of the, the Greeks and Romans, and as well as the uneducated commoners. Some were so committed to separation from Hellenism that they were willing to take up arms in defense of their beliefs, even against fellow Jews, end quote. So the Pharisees uh, separated themselves from those that they thought were less than, those that were secular or uneducated. So the Pharisee would naturally have alienated himself from a tax collector. Uh, he'd have thought of himself as better than uh, this wicked tax collector. And, and tax collectors, uh, you'll, you'll read, are synonymous. You, you'll see tax collectors and sinners uh, often throughout uh, the Gospels. They were just associated with sinners. So I imagine as the Pharisee went to the temple to pray that day and saw the tax collector, he began playing the comparison game in his mind, comparing himself to the tax collector. His heart is swelling with pride as he begins to address God in prayer in verse 12. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Notice he does not thank God for being gracious to him, he does not say, Lord, if it were not for your mercy, you know, I would be an extortioner, an unjust man, an adulterer, lost and unsaved. I'm so grateful to you. No, his words, I thank you, God, are just like a religious cover, a facade for what he's, what's really behind and what's really in his heart, which is, I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So what is the problem with the Pharisee's view of others and of himself? So let me pull out this object lesson that I have. And I'm going to need help. So if you recognize the object lesson, you can just shout it out. Alright, does anyone have it? Yes, thank you, Sherry. So, um, in, in our English language, we have an idiom, um, and it is the pot calling the kettle black. And if you notice, they're both black. Um, and so, basically, when we use this idiom in English, it's when someone is accusing someone else of something that they themselves are guilty of. So it's a, it's a hypocritical thing. So I'm just going to move this up here for, so everyone can see it. So basically the Pharisee is the pot calling the tax collector black. So uh, in the eyes of, both, of God, both Pharisee and tax collector are in, the, are in the same fallen condition. They're both sinful rebels in need of God's forgiveness. So we see that the proud condemn others uh, as the Pharisee calls out the tax collector. But now let's see uh, under this first point of the outline how the humble plead for God's mercy. So verse 13. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his Breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
when someone is ashamed of something that they have done, whether it's um, an adult or a child, whether they've lied or stolen something, they typically look away uh, from the person that uh, they harmed or lied to and they look at the ground. Um, they certainly don't have their head raised. So we see here the posture of the tax collector and, and so really his humility is on display that he doesn't even look towards heaven. On the other hand, the Pharisee was standing confidently up front in, a, in the central location in that temple complex. So the tax collector stands far off looking down, remorsefully um, beating his chest and he may have been an extortioner in the past, charging more than he was commanded to by the Romans. But here before God, on this day, he is contrite and repentant. He's sorry for his sins. His view of himself is much more accurate than that of the Pharisee. He does not offer any of his good deeds to God, but rather acknowledges that he is a sinner and entrusts himself to God as he asks for mercy. The person who has been going to church his whole life is, is just as in need of God's mercy as the worst of sinners. No one is immune from being like the Pharisee and developing an unbiblical, prideful view of himself. Sometimes even pastors and preachers can look down on others. In reality, pastors and preachers need God's forgiveness too. In Thomas Murphy's Pastoral Theology, published in 1884, he encouraged the preacher to sympathize with the unsaved in his audience because the preacher shares so much in common with his unsaved audience. Now here's the quote from, from Murphy in that work. A large part of the audiences to which we preach consist of persons over whom is resting the sentence of condemnation to a death eternal. They are sufferers. At the same time, they are our fellow beings. Our kindred, men, flesh of our flesh, they have the same nature, feelings, susceptibilities, hopes, and fears with ourselves. For their deliverance from all the miseries and dangers of sin did Christ die, as well as for ours, and and that because his heart was moved with pity for us all. No human is above any other human in this respect. The most sanctified preacher who occupies himself with religious duties year after year can see in his own nature every he can see the sinner in, in, in his own nature. It is a danger when we start esteeming ourselves in view of others' immorality instead of in view of the perfect law of God. The Pharisee needed forgiveness and mercy, but he was blind to his need and thus he did not ask for it. So blind were the Pharisees that they even treated the perfect Son of God with contempt on numerous occasions throughout the Gospel accounts. So for application for this section... Don't call the kettle black. Don't look down on others as though you were perfectly righteous. Keep in perspective the real state of affairs. You are a sinner like the rest of mankind. So when you pray to God, 
Don't bring up other people's guilt to commend yourself to God. Acknowledge your own guilt and ask for Him to show mercy on your sinful soul. Now there is a, a place for calling out sin. And there is a place for exposing it. There is a place um, for excommunicating people from the church where that's needed. There is a place where the government uh, should rightfully wield the sword against um, with justice to execute punishment on sinners and evildoers. Uh, this situation that Jesus is addressing here is different. This is about a sinner's individual standing before God. This is when they come to God in prayer. And what attitude we should approach God in prayer. So part two of the outline is the proud trust in themselves, but the humble trust in God. So in verse 12, the Pharisee says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Uh, this Pharisee had a very impressive religious life. Uh, two days per week, he would give up all food and possibly drink uh, to focus on spiritual things. Um, a lot of people today are too lazy to, la- to thank the Lord for their food before they, before they eat. Not this Pharisee. Um, this guy was the real deal, or so everyone thought, including himself. Uh, forget whether this guy was going to tithe on his gross or net income. You know, before the Romans took their cut, or after they took their cut. This guy was tithing on anything that came into his possession that was even remotely valuable. If his aunt gave him a credit card to Medi's restaurant, you better believe he found a way to tithe on that. I'm sure he did many more religious things than just fasting and tithing, though. Fasting and tithing are, are good things, and Jesus is not condemning good works or um, anything of that nature. He's not condemning fasting or tithing. And, um, but, but while fasting, while tithing, while reading the Old Testament... This Pharisee was totally missing the point. When he says, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get, it shows where his trust was placed. He is trusting in his own works and in his own righteousness to gain a standing with God. He was not relying on God's mercy to be accepted. To the natural man, it seems perfectly reasonable to trust in your own goodness if you are a decent person or even a good person. And even this Pharisee, who is a well-educated Old Testament expert, fell into the trap of trusting in his own goodness instead of God's mercy. But trusting in yourself to be righteous enough for God, while it may not seem like a bad thing, it is the very thing which Jesus is warning about in this passage. Remember the intended audience that Luke mentions in verse 9. This implies that it's a very dangerous thing to trust in oneself for righteousness. Why is this such a grave sin? So it fundamentally denies the reality of how you have offended God and it fails to attribute to Christ the glory that He deserves in His redemption. So imagine if you are shopping in the grocery store and you're pushing your your shopping cart along uh, past different aisles 
And as you pass the frozen food section, you see a couple of carts coming fast out of the corner of your eye. And you try to avoid it, but smack, it's too late. It runs right, they, the carts run right into you and you fall to the ground. As you get up off the floor, you start thinking about how fast those buggies were coming at you and you realize they were way too fast. You turn to face whoever ran into you and you see two young adults, two kids. And it clicks in your mind that they were just having some fun racing down the frozen food aisle. You expect to hear an apology, but instead the first kid says, I'm a part of Trail Life USA, and I'm a part of the track team, uh, and I do a lot of good community service in my spare time. The second kid says, uh, I'm a part of my church's youth group, and I just received an award for memorizing three books of the New Testament. I haven't missed a Sunday or Wednesday service in three years. You look at amazement in them and you say, and? Expecting them to apologize for racing down the, uh, racing in the store and running into you. Oh, and we're much better than all the other kids in our school. The other kids cheat on tests, swear, do drugs, all sorts of bad things. These kids owe you an apology, an apology, but they never end up giving you one. Instead, they are just trying to impress you with their good morals. So this this story is, uh, is similar to how a self-righteous person operates in his prayers to God. He has offended God, and yet he just wants to talk about the good that, that he perceives that he, he does and is. Christ's sacrificial death on the cross for our sin would be completely unnecessary if we could earn God's forgiveness and favor by our good deeds. So in this section we've seen how the proud trust in themselves and their good works. And now let's look at how the humble trust in God. Verse 13. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is a short prayer, but a beautiful prayer. It's a prayer that we could all easily memorize and it would do us good to say it often. It's only seven words, but it is packed with theological truth and application. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The prayer shows us the tax collector realizes that he has offended a holy God. The prayer also shows us about God's character, that He is merciful. It shows us that God is a God worth trusting and appealing to. So the tax collector throws himself upon the mercy and grace of God. His prayer is full of remorse as well as trust. He would not have prayed the prayer if he did not believe, if it, or if he believed that God wouldn't listen. Pharisee may have known more technical information about the Old Testament. He may have been a teacher, but the tax collector knew something about himself and about God at a simpler yet a much deeper and practical, more practical level. So you see this tax collector is a Jew and he had, had heard Old Testament passages like, like these from Ezekiel, Lamentation, 
in Psalms. Ezekiel 18, verse 30. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of, the, of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Another passage which the tax collector may have known is Lamentations 3, 1 through 4. Sorry, it's not verse 3 through 4. It is verse 21 through 24. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. Another, Psalm 51, verse 17. Psalm 51 is uh, the psalm which um, is usually attributed to David after he sinned with Bathsheba and lost his son. And At this point, it was probably at the, one of the lowest points of his life and he and cried out to God to have mercy on him, to forgive him and wash him clean. And so Psalm fifty-one seventeen says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So the tax collector, knowing enough of God and who he was, and seeing in himself his need for forgiveness, having his eyes opened, praise God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is what our holy God is like. He is a God who is willing to forgive anyone who turns from their sin and places faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So for application for the section, uh, instead of owning up to your sin against God and asking Him to show mercy and forgiveness, are you trusting in your own righteousness like the Pharisee? Or are you owning up to your sin and asking God for His mercy and forgiveness? Your works cannot save you. Only God out of His own mercy can save you. The tax collector here had a better understanding of God than the Pharisee. The tax collector sets a good example for us here. So trust in God and ask for His mercy. Part three of the outline, the third and final part of the outline, is that God condemns the proud but justifies the humble. Verse 14. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Clearly, the tax collector was justified, and the Pharisee was not justified. But what does it mean here when we say justified? Uh, in the Greek language, just like in the English language, uh, words can have multiple meanings. And so it is with the Greek word dikaiao here, 
And uh, dikaio has uh, many different meanings, um, including it can mean justify, uh, it can mean vindicate, it can mean free, depending on the context. And here I think that justify uh, is the appropriate meaning. It has the idea of a judge in a courtroom pronouncing judgment on an individual. So as God listens to the prayers of these two sinners who have come to the temple complex, as he listens to them from his holy throne room, he is pleased with the tax collector's prayer. But he does not render the same judgment on the Pharisee in his prayer. Pride may alienate a man from his associates, but alienation from fellow man is a relatively small price to pay. The ultimate price of pride is condemnation from God. And this is the danger of pride. It can result in condemnation from God. God's perspective of the sinner is what ultimately matters, not self-perspective. How did God respond to the Pharisees' self-boasting? Did he say, oh wow, you tithe on everything and fast all the time. You have earned my favor. No, instead he listens to the humble tax collector's prayer. The, uh, the Apostle Paul is a, uh, a, another positive example of someone who humbled himself and trusted in the Lord. Um, he was actually a, a Pharisee before uh, coming to faith in Christ. And uh, he gives this uh, account of the transition from trusting in himself and his self-righteousness to trusting in Christ in Philippians chapter 3. Uh, and starting in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as law. I count it as loss. For the sake of Christ. Instead, or indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul found true righteousness in Christ. He's an example for us to throw off trusting in ourselves and trust in Christ. God delights in humility. He hates pride. Humility lines up with reality and it glorifies God. Isaiah 
2 verse 11 says, The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. To God alone belongs glory and honor. Pride is deceptive and it humiliates the sinner who trusts in himself and treats uh, other people with contempt. So it humiliates the sinner. So why would you want to be pride, proud? <clears throat> Dear friend, assess yourself honestly and heed Jesus' warning. Are you the pot calling the kettle black? There is a great danger in pride. Are you the Pharisee in this story? Or are you the tax collector in this story? You're really either one or the other. When our hearts swell up within us, we can need to repent and view ourselves accurately. Sometimes we need to ask forgiveness from someone that we treated with contempt. Let us have humble hearts before God. As I reflect on this parable and, and on what our lives should look like, our reputations should really be one of love, of humility, of devotion to Jesus Christ. And you can be that person by the grace of God. If you're not already, you can mature and grow in Jesus Christ. So spend much time with Him. And let go of your pride. Fully trust and depend on the Savior. And when you are on your dying bed, I hope that your comfort knows that your comfort comes from knowing that you trust a great Savior. Not that you are a great person who is better than the average guy or girl. Hope, pla hope placed in Christ will not disappoint you. You will not be put to shame. For God humbles the proud and exalts the humble. And if you heed this warning about the danger of pride, God will exalt you on Judgment Day. So let us pray. Lord, we uh, come before you. So I want to thank you again for, for Christ, for what he's done for us. Lord, not only in showing us um, how we ought to live and teaching us, which we're in, in much need of instruction, our wayward hearts are. Lord, setting aside his glory and humbling himself to die for us die for this tax collector die for me Lord, we thank you we praise you for this great salvation which we have Lord there's a lot of wickedness in this world and it's easy to turn cold and bitter to treat others with contempt Lord that's not the answer Lord, help us to gain wisdom and gain understanding. Give us humility and work in our hearts by your Spirit, Lord. And help us to have effective outreaches as we interact with the lost. And as we have more and more interactions with those who have utterly rejected you and are living despicable lives. Lord, help us not to be the pot calling the kettle black. 
But Lord, help us to be a mirror reflecting your glory and pointing others to you. Not saying, not trying to have other people turn to people like us and saying you should be like me. That we would be vessels and conduits that point to, to Christ who is worthy of people knowing and people worshiping and honoring who has made the way for sinners like me to know you and to be forgiven for sin. Just thank you, Lord. Please go before us this, this evening. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.